This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program, The Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, life questions, whatever's going on. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 8 Seven seven six three zero kslr numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in with our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, Nothing going on on Tuesday, so let me get right to some questions. Um, Debbie wants to know. I've got two questions, actually, from Debbie. The first one says, is there any significance to the number 12? I noticed God said the child was around 12 and the woman was sick for 12 years. In other words, like the number seven is the number of completion. Um, this is a question referring uh, the, the the synagogue ruler uh, who asked Jesus to heal his son um, um, or his daughter, rather. And um, um, Jesus, of course, did. She was 12 years of age. And then the woman with the issue of blood, who had been plagued by this issue of blood for 12 years. Now, Debbie, there's two answers to your question. First, there is significance to the number 12 in the Bible. It's the number of government or administration. Uh, the idea here is that uh, it, it signifies, you'll see in the book of Revelation, for example, the 12 patriarchs and the 20 and the 12 uh, New Testament apostles. They, they symbolize the whole of Christianity, the whole of believers through all the time. There was 12 tribes of Israel, government. There were 12 apostles. That's administration. So the number 12 is significant. Um, but, but in this particular story, and that's why you have to be careful, uh, in this particular story, it is just a coincidence. Now, for gosh, thousands of years now, uh, people have been playing around with this and trying to link up some significance in it. But here's what I think um, we're supposed to get from this. That one woman had been in misery for 12 years and then one child had been a source of joy for 12 years. I think this is just the the, the Bible telling us that... um, no matter what you're going through, 
There's a whole spectrum of of people going through worse things, better things. I, I just think bad things happen and good things happen. Like the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I think, Debbie, that's the only significance here. It's just a, you know, we're none of us immune from bad things happening and good things happening. I say often to our church, Debbie, that every day could be that moment when everything in your life changes. I, I just talked about this um, on Monday or Friday last week, actually, when when uh, I, I mentioned it, Paul and I, on Saturday, March 20th, we celebrated 51 years together. Uh, not That's when we met, the day we met. We've been together ever since. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that that day everything was going to change. Paula didn't know that day that everything was going to change. And then when I opened the door and she heard a voice kind of speaking to her heart, this is the one for life. Remember, she's not a believer at this time. But 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 it was shocking to think that 51 years ago, everything in my life changed. Had I not made it or had she not broken the date and 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 uh, made herself available that day, uh, our, our whole lives would have been different. And I think personally, that's the beauty of walking with Jesus. I think that that um, the excitement of knowing that every single day, something absolutely wonderful can happen. So I hope that answers your question. Your other question is, um, God tells us that Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. Do we know if he was among the elders uh, that accused and sent Jesus to the cross? Uh, the answer to that one is, I'm certain he was not. Uh, the elders, the Jewish uh, leaders that sent Jesus to the cross uh, are, are pretty well consistent throughout the scripture. Um Anna and Annas and Caiaphas and and the others, uh, uh, you know, among them number Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and a young um, Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who we know became later the Apostle Paul, but certainly not Jairus. Uh, Jairus was one of those um, guys who um, he met Jesus, and I'm sure we're going to see. Jairus in heaven. And then she says this. I'm, this one might confuse you. I'm not sure how to put this question into words. Um, I have faith, but how does faith make the power of God work? I mean, is it like a battery that makes energy flow out or like a light that flows all over the room? Just curious. Um, you don't have to answer if you don't understand the question. De- Debbie, unfortunately, I do understand the question. <laughs> I really do understand the question. Faith is what makes everything work. The power of God is available to everybody, but as we demonstrate uh, walking through life, we meet a lot of Christians uh, that have no power in their lives. They let sin um, interrupt the, the their source of power, um, uh, disobedience, um, just all kinds of reasons. Uh, a lot of times it's unbelief. So here's the hard thing. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with God, all things are possible. And if faith is at length, then what we've got to do as humans is figure out how to stay plugged into the source of that power. In our flesh, we have no strength. You can be the most saved person on planet Earth. But if you're not walking in the will of God, if you're not walking in the power of the Spirit of God then all of that power that's available to you, remember, it's the power that raised Christ from the dead, resurrection power. 
none of it matters if you're not connected to it. It's sort of like having a, a telephone and you're, you're running out of juice and eventually you can talk, uh, but at some point you're going to run out of juice and then there's not going to be any more conversation. Why? Because you're no longer connected. You, you have no source of power. Well, our lives have to be connected to Jesus. That's why I say all the time, just be with Jesus. And the, 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 the vehicle is faith. Now, yeah, you know, Debbie, um, you've heard me say this. Um, I get up every morning and um, offer my life to Christ. Uh, today, of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. Uh, and I go through the same process every day. I've done that my entire Christian walk, now 30 years. It's, it's my way of saying, Jesus, here's my hand. You take it. I'm going to follow you. And the minute he takes my hand and the minute I stay there, power is available to me. I wake up like every other human being in the flesh. And when I get off of the throne in my heart, invite Jesus to take his seat, and I stick my hand out and say, Jesus, today of my own free will, I choose to serve you. Well, that's the moment that I'm connected to power. And that power is only as good as the time I'm with the Lord. If I disconnect, if I get involved in other things that aren't quite so godly, then the power just goes away. Um, We have to remember to stay connected to Jesus because there is no other source of power. So faith comes in by understanding that he's with me no matter what I'm doing. He's with me because he promised. It doesn't matter whether I feel him. It doesn't matter what the circumstances in my life might be. He is with me because he promised. And it's especially in those times when I don't feel like he's with me. Or when things are going wrong, that's when faith kicks in. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the word of God. And then I just know I'm with you, Lord. And then all of that power is available. I think, Debbie, sometimes we often get to that place um, where we think we can do stuff on our own. I ask people a lot, well, have you prayed about it? Well, yeah, I prayed. Okay, tell me what you mean by that. Well, okay, Lord, uh, this is what I would like to do. If you want me to do it, let me know. Or uh, we think God's asking us to do something. We say, okay, Lord, give me a sign. That's not faith. Faith believes and faith obeys. And that's when the power of God meets us. Thank you very, very much, Debbie. appreciate the questions. Here is a question that was just called into our studio producer from Ron. He says, looking for your thoughts on the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, a friend of mine said that I should avoid them. Um, Ron, your, your friend is right. You should avoid them. Now, there's a branch of the Seventh-day uh, Adventists that uh, are cults. Um, unbelievers. Um, there are other branches of Seventh-day Adventism um, that, that fall within the pales of the Orthodox Christian faith. But regardless, even under the best of circumstances, they're very legalistic. They have no understanding of the Word of God. 
Um, be careful you're listening to. Um, they're they're going to bind you in legalism. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, that obviously means that they are Sabbatarians or they worship on Saturday. And anybody who says, well, we're bound to worship on Saturdays because that's what the Bible says. Uh, keep the, the Seventh-day, honor the Seventh-day, keep it holy. Uh, the problem with that is that they, they don't understand at all the transition from law to grace and they miss the point, and the joy is all stolen. So, Ron, yes, I would say stay away from them. Uh, there's lots of great information. Uh, there is a guy in Phoenix, Arizona, Mark Martin is his name. Um, he's the biggest Calvary Chapel uh, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area. A good guy, and is a former Seventh-day Adventist. You can go to his website, put Mark Martin, Calvary Chapel, Phoenix, in the Google search engine, and uh, they'll get you to his site. He has lots and lots of information on Seventh-day Adventists. He was one of them. So that is... um, uh, I think what uh, what you should do. It'll give you some information that you need. Uh, we also just got another call uh, anonymously. Uh, it says, um, what is the difference between dispensationalism, covenant theology, and new covenant theology? And also, does the church replace or fulfill the uh, Israelite promises in the Old Testament? Um, I'm going to work backwards from this. Um, um, replacement theology, and, and there are people that hold to it. Real Christians, unfortunately, they're really, really wrong, uh, said that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God. Israel rejected Jesus, so God did something new, called the church, and now the church is a beneficiary of all of the promises uh, that were given to Abraham. Um, That is heresy. Uh, Real believers sometimes believe bad things, and that's heresy. If God can break a promise to anybody, you see, the promises God made to Abraham were unconditional promises. Now, God also made some conditional promises, but the unconditional promises didn't depend on Abraham at all. Abraham, the father of Israel. So the church does not replace the promises given to Israel. Um, That's why dispensationalism, and that's the first question you ask, is such an important tool to understand our Bibles. Dispensationalism simply means that God works in different ways through different people in different times. Um, um, I'm a dispensationalist. Uh, I think most serious students of the Bible are dispensationalists. There's no other way to understand. I'll give you an example. I just had a question about Seventh-day Adventism. Um, well, God told Moses, keep the seventh day holy, honor it forever from generation to generation. Um, but, but see, God was dealing with them in law. He no longer deals with us in law. Hebrews says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so when Jesus created a new dispensation called the church, actually the dispensation is grace. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood, canceling the old one. So we're just recognizing God works with different people, different times, in different ways. Um, there was a dispensation of law. Um, that, that dispensation is closed. Um, Jesus uh, fulfilled the law. So uh, dispensation is the way we understand it. For example, when it says uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments uh, say to Israel, 
It's just a basic tool of understanding. Um, you've got to know to whom the writer is speaking in the Bible. The promises given to Israel are not promises given to me. Um, in the New Testament, I can find lots of promises, and clearly they're better promises. Uh, but but that's what dispensationalism is. Um, we are living in a dispensation of grace. This is a six, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. That's that period that we're waiting for. And um, uh, that's going to come to close. That that week, the time between 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel, um, that's going to come to an end at any time. That's when Jesus is going to call his church home via the rapture. So uh, that is uh, what dispensationalism is. And yes, we are dispensationalists. Let me give you a, a, a research tool on this one, Anonymous. Um, uh, look at look up uh, the C.I. Schofield Study Bible. He has lots of information. He was actually uh, one of the, the, the men who made uh, dispensationalism um, really popular. Uh, C.I. Schofield um, give you all the information that you need. One word about dispensationalism, a word of warning. Um, there are now people who go way overboard. Often on this program, I get kook calls from people who are called hyper-dispensationalists, and they'll find a dispensation behind every period in your New Testament. And that's simply uh, not a, a, an honest um way to interpret the scriptures at all. So that's that's important. You asked about covenant theology and new covenant theology. I actually haven't heard anything about new covenant theology. Um, um, and you didn't say theology. Tinkin, I'm going to have to look it up. I can't even read the word. Um, covenant tin theology. I'm going to have to look that up anonymous because I've never heard that before. So I'll get to that probably in tomorrow's program if we can find anything about it. Thank you for calling in and asking the question. We would still love your live calls and questions. That sort of breaks up the boredom of speaking to me. Lisa says, Pastor Ron, I was baptized LDS, but now want to be baptized as Christian. Is it okay to do it more than once? Um, Lisa, of course. Uh, it, it is, in this case, it's not only okay, but it's necessary. Because your baptism as a Mormon uh, was not an effective baptism. It wasn't true. It was based on on, on false teaching. Um, being baptized, immersed in Christ, um, happens when you meet him. And now that you are a born-again Christian, and by the way, congratulations and welcome to the family of God. Uh, I realize, especially for lifelong Mormons, it's really, really hard uh, I realize that Mormons, when they come to Christ, uh, lose a lot. They lose family and and uh, standing in communities. And um, uh, but but you've met Jesus, and so now the one thing more than anything else you should want is to publicly demonstrate your faith, and baptism is the way to do that. So God bless you, Lisa. I'm thrilled. Uh, you have no idea how I pray for. Um, People that are stuck in cults and Mormons are a cult. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, in some cases, the Seventh-day Adventists that we just talked about. Um, this is why we share and this is why we pray for people. God bless you and I am thrilled for you. 
340-9585. Here is a question anonymously. Um, question says, I'm ashamed of my past, really ashamed. Since God has forgiven and forgotten my sins, can I deny that I was involved in them? Um, anonymous, no, you don't want to lie ever. Now, lying, you know, sinning to cover up past sins. Here's what you can do. You can begin enjoying the fact that you're no longer who you used to be. Second Corinthians 5.17 says the old is gone and the new has come. Embrace that. Embrace that. And enjoy. Um, your past, your broken past, has now become a trophy that shouts the goodness of God. So don't be ashamed. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if your sins are forgiven and forgotten, if God has forgotten them, don't you think it's time that you do as well? Romans 3.24, read it. It's a, a very simple passage of Scripture. At the same time, it is wonderfully liberating. You type it in here so I can get it. It talks about justification. Justification, Anonymous, is um, to be viewed by God as you'd never sinned. He's talking about for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks God. There's no one who is righteous. But then he says in verse 24, and are justified. Put your name there. You're justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that was 2,000 or so years ago. Jesus took the shame that you now carry. So if Jesus took that shame, what value is there for you to try to carry it all over again? Remember that your past is now a trophy to the goodness and the power of God. Let me also say this. I've got just a couple minutes left in this half of the program. I don't know what you've done. I don't know whether you're a man or a woman. But here's what I know. There's nothing that you've done that is as bad as what I've done. And I've been saved for 30 years, a pastor for 26. And the fact that God can make somebody like me into somebody that he trusts with his word, somebody that he entrusts some of the most beautiful, loving people on this planet to. I get to care for people. I get to love them for him. Now, that's not because of who I am, but rather it's because of what he's done in me. And so now he can do a bunch through me. And anonymous, as long as you're carrying this burden of guilt, the enemy's going to pound and pound and pound. And you're going to miss out on what God wants to do through you. So realize that this shame, this condemnation, comes from the enemy, 
The devil who wants to kill you, he wants to render you completely useless for the kingdom of God. And then reject it. Here's one of those cases. I answered Debbie's question at the top of the program. This is what faith is for. You've got to decide, do you believe the lies the enemy's telling you, do you believe the thoughts that you have, or do you believe the word of God? So you don't want to glorify your past, but boy, there is power in a testimony. Just read the book of Acts. Three times the Apostle Paul shares his testimony with audiences with varying details, not contradictory details, but varying details. And people get saved when he does. And he says he was the worst of the worst. He says he's worse than you are. So have the faith to believe it. I would ask you, Anonymous, to have some quiet time with the Lord and just say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for not taking you at your word. And the next time somebody asks you to share your testimony, we don't need gory details. But here's what you can say, like the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners and God rescued me. That honors him because it honors his goodness, his power, and his love. Good question. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our tuesday program we'd love your live calls and questions 340-9585 here is a question from angel from our email inbox pastor ron i'm new to ccsa that's Calvary chapel san antonio I would like to know what version of the Bible you use because it's hard for me to keep up with the King James Version. Can you recommend any guidance on studying God's Word? Thank you. Keep up the good work. Well, Angel, God bless you. Um, welcome to our church, and I I love to hear this. Uh, I, am, I preach out of the 1984 NIV. Uh, Sunday especially, is, we always do New Testament. Uh, I, mean, I take keep it easy. We we do the Old Testament on Wednesdays, New Testament studies on Friday, and another New Testament study on Sunday. And the Friday and Sundays always New Testament. And and the 1984 version of the NIV is, in my book, by far, the superior translation. Uh, the problem, Angel, with uh, going out and getting an NIV is I really, really, really don't like the 2011 version, which is the upgrade uh, where they've um, um, allowed social pressure um, to, to, to make it gender neutral. Uh, and, and if that's the case, it ceases to be um, a translation. You know the the 2011 NIV. I was reading it this morning because that's all they have on the on the electronic stuff. I was reading my iPad uh, this morning before coming to the office. 
and I was reading in Romans. And um, there's, there's one translation, brothers and sisters. And the Bible doesn't say that. The manuscripts don't say that. It says brothers. We're smart enough to understand it was a patriarchal world and that women really didn't matter back then until Jesus came, of course. Um, so, so really work hard, Angel, to find um, a 1984 NIV. It is not easy. Um, if you approach uh, me or you can talk to Pastor Ken, we may have uh, a couple of them laying around here and we can ask and that way you can keep up with us. Um, I love the King James Version, uh, but uh, it just takes a lot of explanation that the NIV doesn't, so you can do that. Now, regarding recommending any guidance on studying God's Word, Angel, I don't know how long you've been a believer, so so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this as though you're a relatively new believer. Now, that doesn't mean I think you are or anything. I just don't know. But um, the, the, the key in really getting to know God's Word is is just reading it repetitiously over and over and over. Even when Paula reads to me with me losing my eyesight, uh, Paula reads to me and she'll read the same passage uh, repeatedly, um, the passages that we're teaching, and 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 I just want to get it in. And there's just nothing that works quite like repetition. Um, you don't you don't have to be in a rush. So what I would recommend is just getting familiar with the Bible. Read it, um, then find smaller chunks and study it. Read it systematically. By that, I mean don't just open it and start reading it, uh, but read it from the beginning of a book to the end of a book. You don't have to do all in one setting. But uh, if you're going to start in Genesis, um, I would suggest, okay, read five chapters in Genesis and then go to the New Testament. Uh, read the Gospel of John. Read uh, five chapters there. And, and that won't take a whole bunch of your time. And you'll get used to turning pages and you'll get sort of an overview about what the, the, the Bible says. Um, but just be consistent and be steady. And uh, at some point, I promise you, uh, the excitement factor will kick in and you'll want to do it more and more and more. So that would be my guidance on studying God's Word. One other comment... Uh, Paul is probably at home saying, I know he's going to say this. Um, Angel, don't get a study Bible. Do not get a study Bible. Because when you've got a study Bible, we spend more time reading the explanations of the verses than what the verses say, which means we're reading more what man says than what God wrote. And growing in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will for your life takes some time and it takes some patience and it takes some investment. So don't be in too big a hurry to understand everything. I started when I was a brand new believer reading uh, on my desk right now. There's there are actually two of them right now because one of them is almost done. Uh, I carry eight by 11 uh, legal pads, eight and a half by 11 inch legal pads. And uh, when you're reading something and you have a question, then make a note of that question. Don't worry so much about, well, what does that mean? Or how could that be? Just make a note and and commit that to prayer. And, and usually as you continue your reading, um, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you how to dig out the answers. 
And, and I think sometimes by immediately going to study Bibles or immediately listening to what somebody else taught, um, we're actually short-circuiting the, the work that God wants to do in teaching us to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. So 1984 NIV, if you can find it, uh, I could suggest the New Living Translation or the New King James um, um, as as alternatives. If you can't find the 1984 NIV, just don't get the, the modern versions of the NIV. Um, what was so good, so nearly perfect, um, they've ruined so, Angel, I hope that answers your question again. Welcome to the church, and thank thank you for for listening to the program. Hey, if if we haven't met face to face yet, please be sure that you get in my face so I can put a name to the face. Thank you, Angel. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from. I thought I had a phone call, but I don't. From Dominic, is it biblical to pray against spirits of laziness or sexual attraction or lust or depression or discouragement? Dominic, it is not biblical. In fact, it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. There's no spirit of laziness. That's just laziness. It's not, don't blame it on the spirit. It's on you or it's on me. Um, there's no demon of lust. Now, the enemy will tempt you with lust for sure. But it's not a spirit. And what we're doing when we're assigning responsibility to lust to a spirit, what we're basically saying is, well, you know, it's not really my fault. Same thing is true with depression or discouragement. Um, they're tools that the enemy uses. But we've been given by God the tools that we really need to combat those tools of the devil. So, no, it's not biblical. That is charismatic nonsense. And again, I repeat, we are a charismatic church. But but it's just it's just the silliness you you see on on what often passes as Christian television. Uh, so no, don't pray against spirits. Don't talk to spirits. Uh, don't have anything to do with the spirits. Just the Holy Spirit is the only one you need. Just be with Jesus, Dominic, and you can say no when you're tempted. When you start to get depressed or discouraged, um, you can run to Jesus. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And if you're feeling a little bit spiritually lazy, you can discipline yourself. Discipline means training. Being a Christian requires discipline. Not every day do we feel like reading or praying. But when you do it as a discipline, and I don't mean something that's not fun, but you do it in a disciplined manner, you, you, well, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's often when the Holy Spirit is going to work the best. So, uh, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a, an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, I'm a Christian. My husband is no longer Christian. I fell away myself, but came to the, came back to the Lord three and a half years ago. Our marriage has been very difficult, especially because we do not see any agreement in parenting our five children. Our youngest decided a year ago, she's 14 now, she says she is transgender. 
My husband supports it. My daughter is very close to receiving treatments to stop her hormones. From what I understand, my husband knows the word of God, yet is rejecting it in order to support her decision. I'm struggling greatly. I need help. I need counsel. I'm struggling to forgive and do not, and, and to not give in to despair and resentment. Um, um, I, I, I don't know what to say. Um, uh, I, I, th- this is as a, as a new, as a returned believer. I can say the one thing you need now is the support of your church. Um, go get some pastoral counseling. Um, um, at, at the very least, uh, understanding the difficulties with unequally yoked relationships. At the very least, um, you, uh, you 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 know there are people that are being praying for you. Uh, praying for your husband, praying for your daughter, and that's always a good thing. But this is a time where you individually have got to get so close to Jesus that his strength is available to you instead of your weakness, that his joy is available to you, even in the midst of of the difficult circumstances that you're facing. Um, Your husband, as a... um, says he was a Christian, no longer Christian, um, he probably never was a Christian. You know, it's one thing to 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 say I grew up in a Christian home or I went to church, but but a real Christian stays a Christian. Doesn't mean we don't backslide, but it means like in your case that you come running home because you remember that it was much better with Jesus than it, than it is without Him. Your marriage will continue to be difficult. That's why being involved in a church is so vital for you. It cannot be an option. If your husband says don't go to church, you say I'm going. But but seek counsel. This is what churches are for. There are people in your church who are going through what you're going through. I can give you an example. If if you came to our church, and you do not, but if you came to our church, uh, I can think of two families right now, solid, mature Christians, who are going through uh, the same issues. Whether it's unequally yoked marriage or a teenager who's been convinced in these godless schools that we have that this is a good thing and certainly a kid that needs attention, a kid that feels lonely and and like an outcast, which describes a lot of teenagers. um, This is a way for her to get attention. This is a way for her to feel important. And the schools, the people around her, will validate the choices she's making. Um, that's why you need a solid church home. That's how important this is. I can't emphasize it enough. Um, this is one of the things where you need to sit down with your husband and he needs to know how you feel. Um, as parents, you both have the responsibility and this is something you cannot support. You cannot support. If your daughter starts on hormone treatments, um, testosterone in her case, um, it'll be the worst decision that she could possibly make. And it will lead to unbelievable pain and despair for her, not just for you, but for her as well. Um This is when you need a church. I, I hate to keep saying the same thing, but that's how important it is. I wish I could say more. I wish you could see my face. Uh, I can't tell you the pain 
that that Christian families are dealing with because their children are in public schools and being taught this stuff. In fact, this stuff being crammed down their throats. Uh, this is a Christless world that we live in. Our school systems are now Christless. Now, when I say that, I want to say one other thing. I got a phone call waiting, but um, I used to be one who would tell parents if they say, well, we feel led to let our kids stay in public school, I would say no problem. Public school kids need Christian witnesses as well. I can no longer say that. The social pressure is such that to stand in a public school would bring unbelievable ridicule, scorn, and pain. And eventually they wear them out and make, make them feel like their Christian parents are Neanderthals. This is a horrible, horrible thing. So please go to your pastor and find out what counsel they have. Boy, that's painful. Let's go to Scott in shirts on line one. Scott, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Um, boy, that's that's a heavy discussion there. Thank you for sharing oh. that. And, uh, we'll yeah, you know, for Scott, them. Thank you, Scott. You know, the, the biggest pain is those are issues you can't deal with on a radio program. Yeah. Those are issues that have yeah. to be, yeah, they've got to be dealt with, uh, with intense pastoral counseling and, and, and support from a church. And uh, I always feel so inadequate, um, but uh, um, I'm sure that they would appreciate your prayers. Wow. Wow. Hey, uh, brother, I just, um, I just quickly wanted to share, it was a few weeks ago, someone had, uh, had uh, called or written in about uh, uh, Scripture memory, and then it came to mind when you were just talking about the new believer here and, and, and suggesting a Bible for him. Um, I just wanted to share something I was taught years ago that it's worked extremely well. And of course, it's the repetition, like you had mm-hmm. told a few weeks ago. But um, take little papers. Um, I use cardstock and cut them out the size of a business card, and you can get a little business card holder. On one side, you put the uh, scripture reference and maybe just a word or two to remind you, and then write it upside down on the back side, um, the, the full verse. And then you can hold it in your two fingers, and you can flip them back and forth. And what, what you, what's handy about this, you can put a little card holder, you can put it in your pocket when you're sitting and you're waiting in a waiting room or you're waiting on the phone or throughout the whole day, you can pull those out of your pocket and just sit there and flip through them. And it's just been such a blessing to me when I was taught to do that method. Um, and it's something that I could hang on with me. And of course, mm-hmm. do it in whatever version that you're studying and try to keep in that same ver- version of the Bible. So I just wanted to share that. And thank I you, Scott. That's, to thank you that's a great suggestion. And, and love you, brother. God bless. Thank you, man. Appreciate it very, very much. You know, one thing Scott was hinting at, didn't say it outright, is, is memorization is also a wonderful, uh, a wonderfully effective study tool. Um, uh, I'm not a super capable memorizer, um, but every time I've set out to memorize a portion of Scripture, um, it's unbelievable how many times God brings it up in witnessing situations or in counseling situations. It, it's just you hide it in your heart and God brings it out. So it's a great thing. Scott, thank you very, very much and appreciate your prayers for our last uh, question. Let's go to Dorian on line two from San Antonio. Dorian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, sir. I just have a quick question for you, or more like okay. a comment question. 
have a friend and, and we're going back and forth as far as he keeps stating that you can lose your salvation. And he's telling me as a Baptist that we have a, a doctrine that once saved, always saved. And what I said is not a doctrine. It's, I was like going to John 3.16, going to the uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, uh, that that if you um, accept Christ as Lord and Savior and you believe in your heart and you ask him to save you, then you are saved. So how would you um, how would you comment to that friend that keeps saying, oh, the other thing would be um, he uses Judas as an example, Judas Iscariot. With that mm-hmm. being said, I told him, I said, I said, um, I can't say whether that person went to heaven or hell, but I said it, it seems by his choices and his actions, he may not have been saved to begin with. You know, uh, Dorian, a couple of things. You're, you're right that once saved, always saved is not a doctrine. It is, however, what the Bible teaches. The problem that we have with once saved, always saved is that we always think when anybody says they're a Christian that they really are. And they're not. I mean, it's that simple. Judas, uh, as an example, Jesus said about Judas that he was the son of perdition from before the foundation to the earth. In other words, Jesus saying he's a devil. He was always a devil. And while he might have looked like a real believer, he never was. He was one of Jesus' disciples. Hanging around with Jesus doesn't save you unless you are surrendered to Jesus. And clearly, Judas never surrendered his heart to Jesus. Judas wanted what Judas wanted. He didn't want what Jesus wanted. By definition, that makes him an unbeliever. To be a believer, you have to agree with God. So uh, your, your Baptist doctrine um, is is correct. Uh, Judas is an example of that. Uh, if you read Peter's epistles and John's epistles, um, you see how troubled they were for years, for the rest of their lives, in fact, that they didn't know that Judas was an unbeliever. It's as, it's as though that we walked with him, we served with him. Judas was given authority by, by Jesus to cast out demons and heal the sick. One other of the apostles or disciples who became apostles, uh, one other of them um, uh, would have traveled with Jesus when he sent him out two, two by two. And and they would have shaken their head. They, they thought he was, as the keeper of the bag, they would have thought he was the most reliable of all of the believers, or all of the disciples, rather. And so they were shocked, and it, it's something that bugged them the rest of their lives. Now, here's, here's the thing, and nobody can exegete this passage uh, and come to any other conclusion that if you really belong to the Lord, you are. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read it slowly. Just let this sink in. This is what you can tell your friend. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Here's what's important. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what that says is the Holy Spirit was given to us, and literally the word in Greek is is a down payment. The Spirit of God comes in us. It's a down payment on our inheritance that awaits us in heaven. But the key word in verse 14 is guaranteeing. Now, this is God who's doing the guaranteeing. 
This isn't me saying, well, I'm sure I'm saved. This is God who guarantees our inheritance, not him. Jesus said, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. God still hasn't lost any that belong to him. So if if I guaranteed you were saved, it might not mean much. But it's God who guarantees, a, a God who cannot lie. And um, that means if we're really saved, we will always be saved. Now, the problem is we backslide and we live lives sometimes that are not um, uh, that, that, that don't look like the life of a believer. We see people that fall away from God and reject the faith that they were raised with. They didn't lose their salvation. They never really had it. Anybody who's had a transaction with God, even if we backslide, that's the polite word we use for sin, um, our heart bothers us. The Spirit of God lives in us, and we're con- convicted and, and in turmoil. But it's God who's guaranteeing the inheritance. And that's really, really important. And if if you would ask your friend to tell you without any other outside influence, explain what verse 13 and 14 in Ephesians chapter 1 means. There's no conclusion you can come to other than the Holy Spirit comes in you that guarantees that you belong to Jesus. First John chapter 2, I believe it's verse 19, says that they went out from us to prove they were never a part of us. And John was thinking of Judas when he wrote that. And so there's a lot of people who get excited about the Lord. You can also read the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus himself gives us the definition of what that parable means. And there's a lot of people who hear the word of God. They get really excited about, I'm going to be forgiven of my sins. I'm going to get a whole new life. I'm going to go to heaven. But, but they don't really mean it. It's an emotional conversion rather than a genuine conversion. So there's a lot of people, Dorian, who are sitting in church week after week after week, year after year, who really don't belong to Jesus because he's not the Lord of their lives. So hope that answers your question. Uh, stick to your guns. You are correct when it comes to this. Thank you very, very much. Let me see if I got time for one more question. Here is a question from Rich. He says, um, no, here's one. I'll do this one. Maddie says, is it possible to understand the depth of eternal torment in hell? It isn't. It's not possible to understand it. All we can do is take Jesus' word for it, Maddie. He says, it's horrible. It's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is torment beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. Uh, That's what it's going to be like. Um, Being stung with scorpions. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And it's never going to end. So that's the best I can do in the time that we have. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.